a husband and wife were avid golfers and they decided to go out and golf during questionable weather. And as they were out there golfing, a lightning bolt hit them and took them straight to heaven. St. Peter, the tour guide of heaven, as legend has it, was showing them all around heaven all the glories and splendors and majesty of what God had prepared for the people of God. And so the lady asked Peter, says, wow, this is such a remarkable place. Are there any golf courses in heaven? Which Peter replied, of course there is. Heaven's a perfect place. Golf is a perfect game. Yes. And he showed him some of the golf courses of heaven, which far surpassed any golf courses on earth. And she had a big smile on her face, and her husband was moved to tears. And the Peter looked at the husband and says, well, what's the matter? And the wife went over to console her husband. Are these tears of sadness or are they uh, tears of joy? And the husband said, they are tears of sadness. She said, why? This is such an unbelievable place. And, you know, we get to golf on these beautiful courses for the rest of eternity. And he says, yes, I know. But if you didn't make me keep all of those doctor visits, take all of those vitamins and eat all that bran, we could have been here years ago. <laughs> you know, one day here is one less day there, right? Amen, amen. So we're going to continue uh, our valley series. If you are new, we have been doing this geographical series uh, for the first couple weeks of it. We went into caves where we discovered ourselves, and then we were on mountains where we discovered God, and the last couple weeks we've been in the valley. And we said last week that, yes, the church wants to stay on the mountain with God, right, in worship. And not, that's all well and good, and we should desire that. But at the same time, there's a valley down there. And the valley represents ministry. Ministry to the least, the lost, the last, and the lonely. And though we want to stay on the mountaintop, we have to go down there to minister to those people who need the church the most. And if the church chooses to go down to the valley and do all the merciful and the manifold ministries of Jesus, the church will be blessed, it will thrive, and it will grow. But if the church decides to stay on the mountain and to ignore the needs of the people who are trapped in the valley, then the church is going to develop a bad case of spiritual osteoporosis. Now, before we see the decrepitating effects of spiritual osteoporosis, how many do you know what physical osteoporosis is? Well, you should know, especially if you are over 50. And I know that's only a few of us here in the room this morning. Just a few of us, right? Now, here's a medical definition of the disease. We'll put it up on the board. It's a condition in which any number of our 206 bones become brittle, typically as a result of hormonal changes or deficiency of calcium or vitamin D. Osteoporosis is an aging condition that affects, are you ready for this, men? Both men and women. Osteoporotic fractures occur in the... What's that say there? Vertebral column, hip and wrist, which causes numbness, acuteness, onset of back pain, and a hunched over statue 
and the loss of height. Who now is as tall as you once were? None of us are, right? Limited mobility and possible disability. Ladies and gentlemen, please get your vitamin D and drink your milk. Amen? Now, as bad as osteoporosis is, spiritual osteoporosis is even worse for the people of God. And today we're going to talk about the worst case of spiritual osteoporosis in history. And it is recorded for us in God's Word in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 3. And here we go. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet speaking. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. And he set me in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of Man, God's nickname for Ezekiel, can these bones live? This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's try that again. The word of God for the people of God. Let's try it one more time so that uh, they can hear you in the balcony. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, amen. The prophet Ezekiel had the terrible misfortune of being called by God to preach and to be a prophet to Israel during its lowest and darkest point of history. Because of Israel's constant rebellion and idolatry, God sent her into Babylonian captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Now, such captivities were brutal. They were inhumane. They included oppressive taxation, scorched earth policies, genocide, and the deportation of the very best and the finest of Israel's citizens into Babylon itself. It is in the context of this national calamity that Ezekiel the prophet, himself an exile, sees this strange and unusual vision. The Spirit of the Lord whisked him away into a valley. They believe this valley is near Tel Aviv today. And this is the same valley where Ezekiel first saw the vision of Israel's impending doom unless she straightened her ways before the Lord. In this valley, the prophet sees a sight that is horrid. It is horrible and very Halloweenish. He sees acres upon acres upon acres of hollowed out valley which lying on the floor are mountains upon mountains of dusty and dry human bones. Now, on the one hand, these bones are literal bones. They are the Israelites who died during rampant pestilence, widespread famine, and local disease in the cruel sword of the Babylonians. But on the other hand, these bones represent Israel's separation from God. Scripturally speaking, bones represent a person's health or disease before God himself. So when a person is living right with God, his or her bones are considered strong and healthy. 
Listen to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. However, when a person lives in a chronic state of sin and unbelief, of rebellion and disobedience, he or she develops a bad case of spiritual osteoporosis. For instance, after his torrid affair with Bathsheba, in which he had Bathsheba's husband murdered on the front lines, King David cried out to the Lord in Psalm 38.3, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. The proverb writer added, a cheerful heart is of good medicine. How many know that happy people live longer? It's a medical fact. It's a biblical fact. But a downcast spirit dries up the bones. Jesus, the great physician of not only the soul but also the body, adroitly diagnosed the spiritual osteoporosis of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but on the inside they are full of the bones of dead of the dead and all kinds of filth. May that never be said of us. Amen. Now, the arid and the brittle bones that Ezekiel sees lying exposed on the valley floor represent the nation of Israel that is forsaking God. Because she has forsaken God, her spiritual health has deteriorated. The nation is in the last stages of spiritual osteoporosis. So in the midst of this lifelessness, in the midst of this spiritual decay, Ezekiel asked a mind-boggling, faith-oriented question. O son of man, can these bones live again? Can these bones live again? Now, could you imagine if God whisked us away right now over to our cemetery on Colonia Avenue? And we stand there between hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of tombstones. And God asks us the question that he is asking Ezekiel in this passage. Obey point. Can these bones reassemble, reemanate, and come out of this to- these tombs? Not like in the zombie apocalypse. But can they be resurrected? How would you answer that question? How would I answer that question? And so Ezekiel responds to God, God, only you know. How many know that the best way to evade a question is to ask a question on your own, right? It's the greatest offensive mechanism we have, isn't it? Somebody who asks you a question and you don't want to answer it, so you ask them a different question. 
But God does not let Ezekiel off the hook. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And so he says to him, preach to the bones. Preach to the bones. Now, I can tell you, I've preached to many a dead congregation before. I have preached to many a dead crowd before. So if God told me to do that, I would say, no way, Hosea. What would be the point? But thanks be to God that the prophet Ezekiel has much more faith than I do. And how many know it's always dangerous to ask a preacher to preach? You'll never shut them up. And so Ezekiel begins his sermon, not with a silly little golf joke, get it? But with an amazing introduction. Listen, oh dry bones. Listen to the word of the Lord. Wow, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Huh? Sounds a little bit like Baptist preachers, doesn't it? Listen to the word of the Lord. We don't know how long it took, but all of a sudden, Ezekiel sees the bones starting to reassemble. They are beginning to rock, rattle, and roll, if it will. Who remembers that the hip bone is connected to the leg bone and so on and so forth? Could you imagine seeing this? Could you imagine that once these uh, fully assembled skeletons start growing sinew and flesh and muscle and ten tendons and hair and all such things. No wonder why Stephen King, whom I saw yesterday on my 75-mile bike trip, no wonder why he said that the Bible is the scariest book of all. Could you imagine seeing this kind of miracle occur before your very eyes? And so these newly erected bones are standing there now fully fleshed, but they are unanimated. They're kind of like zombie-like. They're kind of just standing there. Now that would be very scary, wouldn't it? And so God calls upon Ezekiel to preach a second sermon. And this time he tells him to preach to the wind. Preach to the wind. How many do you know that God always moves through the Spirit-inspired preaching of His Word. How many do you know that? Put your hand up if you believe that. It is always the foundation. It is always the cornerstone of a healthy and a growing church. Amen? Now, I throw this out because everybody misses it, but I ask people, I survey them, I say, how long uh, is preaching in a growing church? And everybody says, 10 minutes. You can't preach longer than what the good Lord gave you to sat on, that kind of thing. You ever hear that one? I hear it all the time. But nevertheless, it is 41 minutes. Dear sweet, good old Methodist out there. Do you know that when John Wesley preached, he preached over two to three hours each and every sermon. Who would like to have John Wesley come in? And he used the old King James language when he did so. And he was quite articulate and quite academic in his type of preaching. 
And so I figured out I roughly preach anywhere between 30 and 35 minutes a sermon. And if I don't jack it up, the church will never grow. I have to figure out how to get 15 more minutes into this message. Are you all patient enough for that? All right, amen. So preach the word to these people. They fully form, but they're unanimated. And so he says, preach to the wind. The wind. Now scholars are a little bit undivided. If this means have the Holy Spirit come and re-enter these people. Uh, some people think it's their souls reuniting with their bodies after death. Uh, for me, it's not really uh, a concern. For me, it's kind of a both and thing because of what I'm going to read for you in just a moment. But when Ezekiel preaches to the wind, these bodies come back to life miraculously, amazingly. And as they do, God fulfilled his own promise to Ezekiel way back in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, where he said, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh, uh, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statues and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, historically speaking, uh, a national revival occurred in Israel in 458 B.C. when under the commission of the Medo-Persian king named Artaxerxes commissioned Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem and also the temple. Now, folks, how many of you believe, like I do, that the greatest need of our time, the greatest need in the American country, the greatest need of our church, nationally speaking, and locally, right here, right now, is that we need a heaven-sent, history-changing, hell-shaking revival. How many do you believe that, like I do? From the bottom of my bones, I believe this with all of my might. The God Spirit genuinely wants to come again and do amazing and incredible things in our midst, changing our lives, changing our hearts. But I have no, I, I have no doubt that our future depends upon this happening. All too many ways, if we're honest, we have become just like our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, in that we have in many ways lost interest in God in the things of God, in the word of God. And we have failed to love him with everything that we are and everything that we have. We have failed to diligently seek first the kingdom of God in all of his righteousness. And as such, we have developed a bad case of spiritual osteoporosis. In too many ways and in too many people, our bones have become dry they have become brittle, and they have become frail. But as we have seen with Ezekiel and the valley of the dry bones, God is the God of revival, amen? God is in the business of reviving his people. 
I mean, throughout history, his people were always sagging, always lagging, always kind of being indifferent. But he promised to send forth his Holy Spirit to do as that famous old hymn says, and you know it, revive us again. Fill each heart with your love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. How many of you are praying that prayer along with me today? That we might receive God's Spirit in ways that we've never, ever experienced before. I love the fact that God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of churches. He's no respecter of movements. And I am believing God and I am trusting God that he will again, again revive us just like he did in the five greatest revivals of history. You remember them, right? You studied them this morning, right? Who remembers the Great Awakening? Who remembers the Second Great Awakening? Who remembers the Third Great Awakening? Who remembers the Azusa Street Revivals? Who remembers the uh, 20th century revivals under Billy Sunday and Billy Graham? Who remembers that guy? Well, not only was our country revived, but the entire world was revived. How many know we need another revival? We need another revival. I mean, I look in my own heart. I look in my own life. I see how I get distracted. I see how I put the things of the world before the things of God. And you know what? I'm like, God, revive me again. Each and every morning, I wake up and I say, God, revive me again. Bring me back to the first love that is you and the first priority that is you. May my interests, may my desires be totally transformed to see your handiwork, to see your spirit move, not only in me, but also my people, my community, my country, and my world. Amen? God wants to do another amazing work. He wants to do amazing work in you. Please don't ever, ever believe that God is done with you. Amen? I don't care what stage of spiritual osteoporosis you may find yourself in right now. I believe that God, no matter where we are, no matter what we have done, no matter when we have done it, God wants to resurrect us, amen, so that we might truly be the people of God in this world. Practically speaking, I want us together to spark a new revival. Can you imagine that? Look at yourself. Look at somebody else right now and say, you know what? I truly believe that God can use me to do this. Go ahead and say that right now. Look at somebody else right now and say, I truly believe that God wants to use you to do it. Go ahead and do it. Because I really, really do believe. I've been praying all week. God, show us, show us what to do. I want to taste and experience not all the ways that the church is in trouble in this post-church age in this country. I want to experience the awakening, the tremendous revivals which you will be hearing about in the future. I want to experience in my own soul, in my own bones, and in my own church and country. But I know one thing, and I don't like this too much, let me know that God only works synergistically with his people. 
He only works cooperatively with his people. God just won't do it, is what I'm saying. He won't do it by himself. He's always looking for that person to stand in the gap, to take up the hedge before heaven and earth to do what we pray together each and every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's looking for a person. He's looking for a few people. He's looking for a church that says, you know what? We don't want to do same old, same old anymore. We don't. We just don't want to play church. We just don't want to do religion. What we want to do is to see you breathe again on the dry bones of the church in America today. Amen? And so I am going to spark along with you what I'm calling a new heart revival. God is going to do something big. So we're going to do a couple practical things. And the first thing is that every Wednesday... At 11 a.m., I am going to go to that chapel and pray for one thing only, and that is revival. I want you to come and join me if you can. If you cannot, please pray from your home. It doesn't matter. Please let us know when you're praying. And at 5 o'clock, right before the church meal, I want us to spend some time in prayer together that God would revive our church. Church, can these bones live again? Church, can our church thrive again? That is always the faith question. And if you believe it, you will pray like you believe it. Amen? You will ask God to do that very thing. I've been inspired to do this for a couple months now. I've just been really, really slow on the uptake. And I was talking to a, my covenant brother the other day. And his church up in Sarasota, St. John's United Methodist Church, they meet every Wednesday at 11 o'clock to pray. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's impossible. You have to have food, don't you? He says, nope, we don't have food. We don't provide food. If they want to come that night, we'll give them food. But we really, really, really discipline ourselves to pray for a revival. I said, okay, who wants to pray and nothing happened? Put your hand up. Okay. When we pray, we want to see results. Amen? We want to see success. Amen? We want to see God's handiwork and God's movement in our lives and in our community. So he said, Jamie, you got to tell me. Well, give me some testimonies. I'm going to put this together for my church. And uh, he said, well, I can just tell you, we have a greater sense of unity in our church. I mean, no, that's a good thing. We have a greater sense of love in our church, you know. And uh, I said, well, what, what about the other things? And he says, well, I can just tell you that some of th these things are not quantifiable. But he says, what he does is that he takes his prayer request on Sunday. And they pray over them on Wednesdays. And I said, that's all great. Any results? He says, oh, my goodness. I can just tell you. We have seen people healed. We have seen people get hope. We have had testimonies from our people that they never, ever felt closer to God 
that when somebody had prayed for them and lifted them up and asked God to revive them physically and spiritually and emotionally. I just said, Brother Jamie, I'm hooked. I am going to do this. I'm going to put this together. And I really do believe that a church cannot get on her feet until she first gets on her knees. So if you're able, please come Wednesdays at 11 or 5 o'clock or pray for home. But just let me know when you're praying. It's very important to me. And if you have a prayer request that we can pray, uh, even uh, this week, will you please hand it to Sherry in the back so we can be sure to pray for what's ever on your heart. Amen? I want to see God move in my life and in your life like he never has before. But I do know that we're going to have to go ahead and pray it down from heaven. Amen? Pray with me now. Gracious God, wow. I just think you want to do so much more in us and through us and to us and for us. I just think you want to do so much more. As we think about the, the things that are killing our nation, as we think about the opioid crisis, as we think about the fact that 6,000 churches die every year never to open their doors again, as we think about our own denomination and all the schism that it's going through. Lord, you said that you will build your church and the gates of hell will never prevail. The gates of hell will never prevail when your people pray. Pray for you to do a new thing. Put new wine into new wineskins. And to do that, Ezekiel sat there and watched you do a miracle he never thought could happen. But he was obedient. He preached. He preached to the bones. He preached to the wind. Help us to get back to centering our lives on your word. Help us to get back to inviting your Holy Spirit into our open hearts. Help us do that for a season until we see great and mighty things happen. In Jesus' name I pray it.